All right, welcome to Peeps Creek, the cafe where we serve you delightful, slightly intense, but definitely worthwhile conversations. A podcast focused on bringing people together by drinking, listening, and conversing. So grab your favorite drink and let's see what's on today's menu. All right, people, welcome to Peeps Creek. You know, here at Peeps Creek, we always have a conversation centered around a drink. And I always have my trusty water bottle here. Boom, boom, boom. Get me some water. Mm-mm-mm. And today I am mixing it up and just doing back to my regular little mix bourbon with um, sugar-free ginger ale so that we can get rid of the carbs. All right. So we are going to travel to Brockport, New York. And we are going to the College of Brockport. We are going to travel back in time to September 29th, 2012. So September 29th, 2012, in the wee hours of the morning on this particular campus, the campus police received a phone call from a frantic mother. This mother was concerned that her daughter was not communicating with her. It had to be somewhere between 1230, 1 a.m. The daughter was not communicating with the mother. The mother contacted one of the daughter's closest friends, and that closest friend, I believe her name was Samantha. And she was asking Samantha, you know, have you, you seen my daughter? Right. And so the door, the, the friend was basically like, nah, I left campus this weekend. Remember, this is early Saturday morning. She left campus on Friday to go back home to visit her family. But she said, you know, she's probably sleeping properly out. Now let's put this in some perspective. This is a Saturday, right? On a college campus. So nine times out of 10 from Friday night into Saturday morning, there was some partying going on um, and people were going to express themselves, have fun with one another, right? All right. So it's not unusual that a 19, 20 year old is not up in the middle of the night texting their parents, right? When they're out as an adult or semi-adult or living on their own on campus, right? And the particular mother was looking for her freshman daughter. So. This is an opportunity to talk about the beauty of leaving one's home for the first time, right? You graduate high school, you know you want to do X, Y, and Z and go to college, and you go away for the first time away from your parents without any supervision. And so you technically become an adult, right? Even though you may not be 21 years old at the time, but you're functioning in a a capacity as a semi-adult, right? Because you're making your own decisions about where you want to go, how you want to live, what time you want to wake up, what food you're going to eat, right? And things of that nature. And so this is an exciting, yet at the same time, a scary time. So I can get why a parent would be a little frantic that their child is not picking up with, you know, picking up the phone or, or, or responding to text messages in the process of them trying to communicate with one another. And so once the friend told her, you know, maybe she's asleep or maybe she's out, the mom just had some kind of feeling, whatever that feeling was. We don't know why that feeling was there, but there is something to be said about a mother's intuition, right? A mom knows when something is wrong, even if it may not be to the extreme that they feel, there's always this concept of a mother's intuition. And so that kicked in on September 29th, 2012, early in the morning. And so at that point, she, she'd been that particular person's mother contacted the campus police. And so in the process of them contacting the campus police, you know, they were basically saying, well, maybe she's out, maybe she's partying, you know, this is a college, like kids, they're not 
at home or excuse me, they're not in their dorms studying at 1.30 in the morning on Saturday. But putting that aside, because the mother was fairly insistent that they least go and check on it. So the cops do what they consider to be a welfare check. And a welfare check, as many of you probably already know, is just a simple fact of there's a concern that someone that you know, you need to have some kind of relationship with that person, whether it's friends or family, significant other, but you have a concern that there has not been a response. And so a lot of times that response is a long period of time, right? It's not necessarily um, an hour, right? Or two hours, right? But given the fact that this particular individual was away from home for the first time, it appeared that the, the, the cops accommodated or acquiesced to the mother's um, insistence that they go and do a welfare check for their daughter. So they go to the dorm room they knock on the door, dorm room. I think the dorm room number was 108. Which particular dorm, I don't know. By the way, this is my first time trying this spice chai hookah flavor. It's not that bad, actually. It's not strong. It doesn't give you a headache. And it's the kind that doesn't have nicotine in it. It's pretty good. The smoke's are good. Okay, not that you really care about that. That has nothing to do with the true crime, right? Okay, let's get back to that. So, <laughs> so they knock on the door. There's no answer, right? And so... Again, we're, we're talking like 1.30 in the morning. And actually, the time frame, and I wrote this down, was actually 2.42 a.m. when the mom contacted the um, campus police to do the welfare check. So they knock on the door. There's no response. So one of the cops who was there, there was a concern that, okay, well, maybe, just maybe, the door's open, right? And not necessarily a concern, but uh, sort of like an intuition as well. Maybe the door is open, sorry. And so they go and they push the door open. And the reason I'm looking down is that I want to get something that I want to play on here so you all can hear it, but I'll do that in a moment. And so they knock on the door, no response. And so they open it or try to attempt to open. And so then when they open the door, which it was open, it was unlocked. They are shocked to see what they see. What they see is blood splatter is everywhere. I mean, it's on the walls, it's on the bed, it's a pillow. There are bloody footprints in the dorm. And in the center of the room is a female who's lying face down. She has dark hair and it's unclear immediately whether this individual is deceased or just badly injured. Something had occurred though, right? There's blood or blood footprints going towards the restroom where they were. So one of the other uh, the females who lived in this particular dorm just heard this man screaming for help. Like, help, help, help. Okay, whatever. And so she gets a little nervous because first of all, it's early in the morning. Secondly, is a male randomly just screaming. And so what she does is what any sane person in that <laughs> situation would do is look through the peephole to see what's going on, right? And she looks through the peephole, but then she realized that it is an officer. So the, the officer is asking for help. And then what he does is that he dispatches for another officer to bring an AED. Because at this particular point, we don't know if we needed to give some kind of special assistance and some CPR, do the shock to see if we can assist this individual. And there's nothing but commotion in the dorm room. Like the students are confused about what's going on. Like, why is there a, why is there some random person in his screaming? And, you know, how, how do you 
deal with this in the middle of the night, waking up groggy, probably, right? Trying to figure out what's going on. And so when the other officer arrived, it becomes apparent that the AED is not going to be helpful for this particular individual who's lying there, right? And so it's unclear who the person is, right? Because even though we know that there are two people living in the dorm room, we don't know which one it is, right? And so when the the officers call for paramedics and then one of the individuals who was in the dorm room who overheard the conversation, heard the officers go tell one of the paramedics that we need you to pronounce her, right? And so the paramedic goes in and they pronounce her dead, but they pronounce her or identify her Jane Doe. So everyone who's ever did anything or heard any true crime or seen any kind of law and order show, you know that there is sometimes where police officers or individuals who, or even the coroner, are they're unable to identify the deceased, right? And so if they are unable to identify the deceased, they are given a Jane Doe for female, John Doe for male. Some people use numbers. Some folks do John Doe three, whatever, so that as they go back into the historical records, they can identify who that person is. And if they end up burying them, without any identification. And then sometime later on, if someone is able to identify the body, they'll be able to um, know who it is because it's J Doe three, five, six, seven, eight, four, right? Whatever. Okay. So we don't know who it is. And you're probably wondering, well, why don't they know? There's two people who live in the damn dorm, figure out who it is. Part of the problem is, is that there's two folks that, that live there. There's an Alex Kogut, K-O-G-U-T, her roommate, Name is Kelly Stevens, but they look alike, right, on the on the picture. So the cops are able to see pictures of themselves. And when I say themselves, the two girls, they're posting pictures of themselves. One of the girls who the mother had called about, Alex Kogut, she's blonde. So they didn't think it was this girl lying in the middle of the floor um, because this girl is brunette, you know. So... At this particular time, they're trying to reach the other roommate. They know that one person is deceased. And so immediately the cops are starting to think, and maybe there's some issues here. Maybe someone attacked both girls and took the other girls hostage and left one dead. All right. They're trying to navigate through this. And so they began talking to some of the dorm uh, individuals, people in the dorm, and they find out that one of the girls who lived in that room was having a guest that weekend. That weekend guest was Alex Kogut's boyfriend. His name was Clayton Whittemore. Okay. And so he had come up on the 28th. In fact, he had come up at the time that Alex was out on a, a swim meet. And so when he arrived on campus around 4.30 p.m., she was still out. And so the evidence that she sent him a text message apologizing that she wasn't there on time when he arrived. And he basically was like, no, that's okay, baby. It's all good. Right. Right. So, so folks are also saying, okay, they, they knew that he had come up. So what the cops then are trying to figure out, okay, is he in danger? So not only do we need to find the other person who obviously, um, live in the same dorm with the other person who was in the middle of the floor deceased, we now need to try to figure out where's this Clayton Rittenmore. All right. So. The cops start asking, did they see Alex? Had they seen Clayton? And so what happens is, is that some of the girls 
in the dorm tell them, yeah, we saw them earlier that day. And, you know, they were hanging out. We saw them at a party, right? And in fact, the police saw Clayton early that morning because Clayton and Alex were walking from um, a party sometime after midnight. And Alex, excuse me, Clayton had an open container drinking beer can and he passed by a campus police and the campus police basically said, look, yo, you know that you're not supposed to be having an open container on campus. We're going to have to give you a citation. So they gave him a hundred dollar citation. From the accounts of the officers, he was cooperative. He was respectful. He received the citation. Then as they walked past, one of the officers saw that he actually threw the container down on the ground. And so at that point, the officer yelled back at him, was like, you want another ticket, bro? Because that's another $100. So Clayton, for all accounts, the two, at least the two officers who had cited him, basically said that he was cooperative again. He picked up the, the beer container and he discarded it elsewhere. All right. So, so, so. We know that we we that Clayton Whitmore was on campus. We know that a from the account of the girls who were in the dorm room. We also know that because hello, the cops gave him a ticket and was going to coincidentally give him almost another ticket if he didn't pick up that damn uh, can of beer that he was walking around. I don't know why you're drinking beer anyway. You see what I'm drinking here? Boom, 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 baby. All right. So, but everybody don't like liquor. All right. So then the cops also trying to figure out the relationship between Alex and, and Clayton. So they began asking people, you know, what did you understand about their relationship? And for all intents and purpose, everyone thought they were in love. Right. In fact, just some 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 brief background. Clayton and Alex, they were dating for a year and a half. Clayton still lived in New Havenport, where Alex also used to live, right, before she went away from college at Brockport, which is almost about two and a half, three hours away, right, from New Havenport. Um, and he was going to community college. She was at um, Brockport College or New Hart Hartford. I said Havenport, Hartford, New Hartford. Okay. They met when she was in the 11th grade. He had already graduated. So she was, she's 18 um, while she's in college. So they met when she was about 16 and maybe he was maybe 19, something like that. So he's somewhere between two to three years older than her. Both of them were athletic in high school. They enjoyed the different sports. She was in swimming. He was in hockey. According to some of the friends who, who played hockey with him, he was a stand-up type of guy. He didn't really have a lot of issues, at least from the team. Now, I, I would tell you, I'm not sure how much I believe that. I think, you know, people just don't want, I, I think the folks who they interviewed for this particular series just didn't want to indicate that, you know, they were like normal teenagers. Because basically what they were like, they were saying that, you know, no, he never got into it. He never drank. He never did this, that, and the third. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Now, I could see that, right? Because I didn't, my first drink was when I was 21. So I guess I could see that. But still, not the way he was walking around like campus throwing down your cans. So I think maybe he was drinking, but putting that aside. But anyway, so everyone thought that the, the two were in love. The cops were trying to figure out more about him. So they contact Alex's mom who had called them as well. 
And, you know, she basically was like, we don't have any problems with him. We don't see him doing any harm to anyone. And so, you know, he came here before he came up. He got a care package for Alex. And we even gave him like $20 for gas, right? So no one had any concern, issue, right? That there was going to be an issue with Blake or with Alex. So the, the cops are still operating on the assumption that someone harmed one of these girls and they probably not only have the other roommate, but they probably are doing something with Clayton. Okay, now, the cops find out at 12, 13 a.m., Alex tweeted, should have known. That's all she tweets. She doesn't follow up with it. She don't come back and say, you know, this is what this means. So no one at this particular point of time knows what it means. Her friends who will follow her on Twitter, you know, maybe have some presumptions about it. And so as the cops were um, investigating the matter, they asked individuals, do you know what that might have meant? And so a few folks were saying, you know, yeah, they had a great relationship, but for whatever reason um, this weekend, they did seem to get into it a little bit. And part of the reason they got into it is that uh, the, the aspect of having a long distance relationship, right? Alex is in Brockport, two and a half, three hours away. Clayton is in New Haven Port, or I keep saying New Haven Port, but I don't think that's the, the city. What did I just say? It is Hartford. I don't know why I keep wanting to say Haven Park. He's in New Hartford. And so there's tension that they are not fulfilling their 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 promise to each other. The promise to each other is that we're going to be in this long distance relationship. We're going to work it through. We're going to act as if we don't have any distance between us. That means we're going to be communicating effectively. We're going to be talking all the time, FaceTiming. If there's some kind of video, I don't know. I don't think they have to FaceTime at the time, but you know, some kind of Skyping or whatever. And we're going to be committed to each other. Right. And so folks were saying that they were kind of arguing about that, but you know, no couple is without their flaws. No couple is infallible. And I, I don't know any couple that had that is that that don't have any kind of arguments okay all right so all right so around 3 a.m there is a call to a neighboring police dispatcher and that is in Oneida County which is about three hours away and there is a call from a dad okay and what I want to do is actually play that phone call. So give me one moment. 911, address of the emergency? Yes. Uh, my name is Scott Whittemore. I'm at work. And my son, Clayton, who's a teenager, 21 years old, just called me Now, so the audio is kind of bad, but if, for those of you who, who did not hear that, it is basically saying that this person's name was Scott Whittemore and he's calling because his son, Clayton Whittemore, just called him and said that he had killed someone. All right. Now, let's put a let's put a pin in it. All right. So the Oneida County dispatcher does not know what's going on three hours away at Brockport College campus. Right. What he hears is that there is a father who contacts him to say that his son contacted him while he was at work 
and said that he had killed someone. So that's what we have going on, going into this particular situation. All right. So he he also says in this in this recording, when he calls for 911, the 911, the father, he also says he doesn't know where this occurred. He doesn't know where Scott Clayton is. And he also said or indicated that his son was stating that he wanted to kill himself. And so the son apparently had asked his father, Scott, if he had a gun, right? Because if he had a gun, he wanted to be able to harm himself. So the father who is Scott, contacts the mother. Now, um, for purposes of full disclaimer, the, the parents are divorced and they don't they don't have the best relationship. And apparently Scott and Clayton did not have the best relationship. Okay, so there is obviously some familial issues there. But Scott contacts his ex-wife. The ex-wife says, well, he was there visiting his girlfriend at Blackport. So at that particular time, the Oneida County dispatcher put things together and he recognized, okay, I need to get in communication with Brockport campus police, because obviously if this is true, you know, maybe there is some harm there. So this dispatcher contacts Brockport college dispatcher, right? And basically says, look, I received this call from a, a parent who's a little frantic, right? He basically said that his son indicated that he had harmed someone and i think he actually says he killed someone and that he was on brockport there and his girl he was visiting his girlfriend and his girlfriend is alex Cogart. all right so and he gives the name of the son clayton whittemore this is the dispatcher the campus police basically said oh yeah we know him we gave him a ticket earlier we've been looking for him we need to be able to speak with him because we think that he has alex and he says you know because the roommate is doa right dead on the right okay so the officers are still even though they have not truly identified the deceased lying on the floor in the, the dorm room because alex is blonde haired right according to the pictures in the dorm they presume that it's the roommate so that's what they go for right that's where they are and so they want to be able to speak to Clayton because maybe he was there in the room. There were some issues. You know, there was a roommate's back. Something he got upset or maybe both of them got upset and harmed the roommate. So they don't know what's going on. Right. All right. Now. Um, and so after they contact the campus police, the Oneida County dispatcher then gets in contact with Clayton's mother. And so when they get in contact with Clayton's mother, she tells them that he told her, he Ben Clayton told her that the girl, that, you know, he did something bad and that the girl was breathing, but she's not, right? And so that dispatcher communicates that to the Brockport campus police. And so it's at this time that they begin to think, okay, maybe it's actually that Clayton harmed Alex. And so in the part of their investigation, they realize and uncover that Alex had recently dyed her hair, right? And not only that, the roommate gets wind of what's going on. And the roommate finds the police officers and basically saying, look, I was standing in another dorm room that night. So process of elimination, the fact that Alex had dyed her hair, roommate is apparently alive and well. Clayton contacts his father, said he killed someone. 
and then contacts his mother, said that the girl was breathing, but she's not. And so, you know, they put that together and they realized that, okay, it's actually Alex who is harmed. Clayton, at some point, contacts the police. So let's listen to the 911 call. All right. Um, yes, sir. I'm, I'm turning myself in. Okay. Is this where... Is this Clayton? Yeah. Where are you, Clayton? I'm at... Excuse me. Oh, I'm at the Duet Rust area going eastbound towards you. Okay, so you're at the Duet Rust area on the throughway? Yes. All right. What, what kind of car are you in, Clayton? Um, I'm sitting right outside the thing. I'm not even in the car. I'm sitting right here for it. How'd you get to the web? You're driving your black Lincoln? Uh, driving my car. Okay. I'm okay. okay. uh, walk right up to him. Alright, do you have any weapons on you, Clayton? Uh, no, sir. I just got okay. my keys and, um, okay. shoot. Is there anything else I can, while we're waiting, is there anything else I can help you out with? Um, I was just wondering if you could let me just make a phone call and apologize for what I did real quick. Well, I, I can't. Yeah, that's okay. I'm yeah. I can't, but, but when, I, when the, guy, the guys get there to help you out, you can ask them. You know what I mean? If you want the dust penalty, can you ask for it? Uh, I have no idea, man. So, listen to that. He said, if you want the death, death penalty, can you ask for it, right? So this is someone who obviously felt that they did something horrendous. And it's all but a confession that he murdered Alex. And so the, the cops go pick him up and they do a taped interview. And there's video out there of his taped interview. And basically what he says is this. He says, look, he says he and Alex went, went to a party Friday night and he felt that she was not as loving towards him as she was to other people. So apparently she was giggly and laughing and smiling with other people when they came in, the guys or the girls. But w when it came to him, she was not so giggly, right? Not so loving, right? Okay. All right. Instead of just going and telling her, look, let me get the keys and let me get my shit and let me go. <laughs> like, I, I didn't drive two and a half, three hours up here for this. I'm going to go home, right? Instead of doing that, he gets upset and then apparently there were claims and allegations of cheating. And so as they were discussing this, according to Clayton, in the room, in the dorm room, she started pushing him and pushing him and pushing him. And so essentially it was a provocation and he hit her. And what he said was, is that he, after he hit her, he backed out, he doesn't know what happened. Right. Now, at some point he comes, he comes around some kind of way, because obviously he got into his car and drove three hours. Okay. Now. He, but what he says is to the officers, and this is really, really weird, right? He says he opened his eyes and realized there was blood everywhere. And at this time, he also saw Alex, the girlfriend, whom he loved, right, allegedly, and whom he was driving two and a half, three hours away from to see, right? The individual who he felt that, you know, he made this promise to, they're going to work through their long distance relationship, right? He saw her having difficulty 
breathing. Basically, I, I imagined that she was gasping for, for air. She was boorishly breathing. And so what he said is that he didn't want to see her suffer anymore. So he did what he essentially categorized as a mercy kill. And so there are multiple versions about what happened, depending on what you watch and where you go to research. But apparently there was a clothing iron there. And as part of this mercy kill, what he decided that he was going to do was that he was going to take, he took this iron, he raised it up and he said he slammed it down with all his might. And he said he did that at least four to five times. Okay. That was his way of killing her mercifully. Now, some of you may be wondering, okay, well, why didn't the officers just turn over and look at her face and, and figure out who it was earlier on? than going through this whole drawn out long process. Part of the reason was, is that she was unrecognizable. And as you can imagine, now that you hear what was the mercy killing, right? Imagine just getting hit with someone, he was pretty large, with all his might, with a clothing iron and smashing into a person's face. And not only that, prior to this, apparently there was a, a, horrible beating that he did to her with his fists. So she was just completely unrecognizable. So he goes to, he, he's arrested. He's charged with second degree murder. And of course, his defense is not that that wasn't me, right? He got a tape of him calling and saying that, you know, he did that, right? And not only that, at the trial, there was a there was evidence not only of the tapes of the 911 calls between the mom, between the dad, and between Clayton. There was a text message that he sent to Alex's cell phone at 4.02 a.m. Now, mind you, he knew that she was dead, right? Because he had already left. The text message says, sorry to the family and you, nothing will ever fix or undo what I did. I became my father, but worse, the one thing I wish I'd never be an excuse for it. I don't know what I mean. I guess he was just, you know, sending a, a message, what have you. And um, so when he gets to trial, he doesn't say that I didn't do it. What he says is that you cannot convict me with second degree murder because I don't have the requisite intent. In criminal law, that's called the mens rea. Mens rea mean basically the ability to think about or, or know what's going on with the crime, right? And so that is typically called intent, right? Now, the difference between first degree, second degree is, is premeditation. In other words, you thought about the crime, right? But second degree murder could could be, it still requires intent and, and, and or at least the mens rea, the, the, the forming of the mind to actually do the crime. Whether you planned it out is different, right? That's premeditation. I planned it out. I planned to murder someone, right? But what he said is you can't convict me of that. If the least you can do, the max you'll be able to do is maybe involuntary manslaughter. So involuntary manslaughter in most jurisdictions, of course, carry a lesser criminal offense or sentencing one is convicted of it. So you think of involuntary manslaughter uh, as like heat of passion. If I walk into the room or the house and I see my significant other in the bed with someone else and I get pissed and I shoot both of them, right? I didn't plan to do that. I didn't come home and have any kind of idea that I was going to get into a crime. But because I see my um, paramour in bed with someone else, 
um, messing around in my house that I'm paying mortgage. That just put me in a state of shock and I lost it and I blacked out, right? And so therefore I killed them and I should be charged with involuntary manslaughter, which I would spend nine times out of time, 10 less time in jail, right? And so what Clayton was saying was that I suffer from PTSD and I suffer from PTSD because I had grew up in an abusive um, childhood. Not only did he beat me, but he said that he saw him um, beat his brother with a baseball bat. He saw his father break his sister's nose. He saw his father beating his mom. And that caused him to have PSD when it comes to people who he loved, right? Being violent or mistreating him. And what it, in essence, what that argument is and that defense says is that Alex, while she was pushing him and allegedly hitting him, right, that caused him to have a break in his psyche because it made him go back into time to realize that someone he loved was harming him and breaking his trust. And so he was using that as a defense to say, there's no way that you can charge me with second degree murder right now. The prosecution, however, was able to go back and reach back into time. Now, remember, we talked about this on several episodes. There are things that you do or have done or may have done in your past, right, which you may not have been charged for. But if it is similar to related to the issue that you are now in, you know, in trouble with in the criminal law, right? It can show means, opportunity, motive, and things of that nature. So there are behaviors what are considered previous bad acts, right? That can be brought up into from the history, your history, to show that this is something that you you do. This is your mode of operandi, right? And so they brought in a girlfriend who was a girlfriend before Alex. And the girlfriend said that they were in a park one day. He got upset and he just choked her. I mean could just choke her. And what she said was, I did not think he was going to let me go. And then eventually he decided to move his hand from around my neck. So they were able to bring that in evidence. There was evidence from a hockey team member who said that there was one point in time where Clayton was drinking, right? See, look at, look, look at the beauty of being able to navigate through our legal system and listen and, and figure out how you bring in evidence for certain things. But they were drinking and keep in mind that on September the 29th, 2012, in the wee hours of the morning, Clayton was given a citation for having an open container. So there you have that connection drinking, right? The hockey team member indicated that when they were drinking, Clayton pulled out a knife and just was standing there all wild towards people. And one of the hockey moms had to come in and really de-escalate that situation. So they were able to bring that in to show that you know, he has a history of doing things like this, of being violent, and that's not necessarily indicative of PTSD, nor should it be an excuse to to minimize the charge that he was going to be receiving, second-degree murder. And the prosecution did not argue, did not try to prove otherwise that maybe his father was abusive. They didn't even go that route, right? Because for for, for their purposes, that was trying to do a trial within the trial, A, and that would only confuse the jury, right? See, this is this is evidence, rules of evidence. People out there who are lawyers or know anything about the law, these are some of the intricacies of dealing with the law. That is such a beautiful thing. And I truly, 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 truly love it. Now, again, anything I say on this podcast is not legal advice, nor should it be construed as legal advice. It's your informational 
purposes and discussion purposes only. All right, putting that aside. And also what the prosecution was trying to do was bring in about 20 or 30 voicemails. And there were 20 or 30 voicemails from Clayton that he left to Alex that Alex saved. And those voicemails were threatening voicemails. He was calling her slut skanks. There was some voicemail. I wrote it down. Hold on, let me see what it said. What did he say? Oh. There was one voicemail, basically he said, don't waste my time, stupid bitch. I'm gonna kill you next time I see you, okay? Now, ultimately the judge decided that he was not gonna let any of those voicemails in. Some of you might be wondering, okay, why not? Hello, he let in his other stuff. Why did he let that in? And some of that is related to, again, the rules of evidence, the beauty of it, is that there are some information that is, or some evidence that is actually one point on par with the crime that's been charged as well as the evidence that needs to be presented in order to substantiate that crime. But there is a such thing as 403 and 404, particularly in the federal rules of evidence. And most states have rules that go in line with those. And basically what that says is, look, there is evidence that is too prejudicial, that if that's brought in, this person who that evidence has been brought against is not going to be able to come from under that no matter what they present because it's just going to taint the jury's perspective of that particular individual and they're going to find him guilty probably on that evidence alone. And, you know, we don't know how far in time those voicemails were. We don't know if it was the same day, the day before, but for all accounts for most individuals who saw Alex and Clayton on the 28th when he came up, they said that they were pretty, you know, happy for them for the most part, until there was this issue at the party and ultimately it caused him to murder her. So that's the episode. That's episode 53, Distant Lover, right? And part of what the family and other folks have created is called the Purple Pinky Foundation to help women who are, I don't know if it's just women or is it just domestic violence victims. And so given the lookout, if you are going through a similar situation, abuse or things of that nature, find some resources in your community. There are a lot of resources out there. You don't need to stay. Sometimes people, the people who do you the most harm are the people who are supposed to love you the most. And so it's important that you, you know, you protect yourself at all times. All right. So that's the episode for today. I appreciate you spending some time for me today. And you know that you can do me a favor. You can rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'll be so indebted to you and forever grateful look at this smile or and or if you look at us on youtube you can listen comment and subscribe that would be great as well whether the comments are good bad or indifferent bring them on it's okay it's only going to make me better and always until next time you make sure that you continue to drink listen and converse peace and love